as well. Uh, ooh. So welcome this morning. Um, if you're new to us, yeah, again, just a special welcome. Do fill out one of those green cards just so that we can get to know you a little bit better and you can get to know us and get to know uh, all the stuff that we're doing uh, and so we can help you. As a church, we are working our way through the book of 1 Peter. Uh, and uh, we're, we're in the beginning of chapter 4 this morning, so if you just want to find that, uh, 1 Peter's obviously towards the back of the Bible, the, the letter's there. Uh, if you've been with us uh, on our journey through 1 Peter, you'll know that uh, last week we, we skipped over the beginning of chapter 4. We were looking at the second half of chapter 3, uh, we're also looking at the second half of chapter 4, because... Peter was talking about a common theme in those two bits. He kind of got distracted when he started chapter four. Oh, no, 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 I've got to go back to this thing uh, on the theme of suffering. So it was good to put those two bits together last week, but we're not going to ignore uh, the beginning of chapter four. We're going to come back to that this morning. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 Peter and the beginning of chapter four. Therefore, Christ suffered in his body. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourself also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to the human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. I'm just going to pause at that moment, at that verse for just a moment. We've got a couple more verses to do. Um, but if you remember last week, I, I said one Peter uh, managed to drop these kind of two verses into verse three, <clears throat> which were, were kind of a bit complex and we didn't really have time to, to look at. And so I said I'll stick some uh, additional notes online about 1 Peter 3, 19 and 20, because it's one of those verses that you just look at and you think, what's all that about? Um, and, and to be honest, Peter doesn't seem to confine himself uh, to that chapter. There's another, there's another verse uh, here that when you first read it, you think, gosh, what, what, is, what is Peter saying here? And that's actually that verse we've just read, 1 Peter 4, 6, where he says, uh, for this reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regards to the spirit. And when you read that, you might think, well, what's actually being said there? What does that actually mean? And in true form, as I did last week, the answer is I'm actually not going to tell you because that actual verse isn't pertinent really to where I want to go. But exactly as for the same reason as I said last week, we are a church that believe in the authority of the word of God. And we don't want to skip over these verses that are a little bit tricky and just say, I'm not going to go there today. So I didn't intend to do it, but there will be some more notes online. Um, 
it'll be on the, our church Facebook, social media. If, if you really can't find it, drop someone a note, they'll point you to it. But if you're really thinking, gee, I, I really want to know what Peter was saying just there, I'll drop some additional notes on there. And we'll, we'll keep to the subject that we're going to look at uh, this morning. So let, let's pick it up in, I think it's uh, verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober, of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. I mean, Father, we just pray that you will bless your word this morning. Uh, just give us understanding to hear what Peter is saying, not just to these people 2,000 years ago, but what, what you are saying to us here today. Just pray you bless this word in your name. Amen. The title I want to give to this morning's uh, sermon is A Healthy Church. A Healthy Church. What does it mean to be a healthy church? What are the signs that we should look for? Because in many ways, this follows all that Peter has been saying in his letter so far. In chapters 1 and 2, Peter has been talking about our position before God. Even though the people he is writing to are scattered throughout the region, suffering for their faith, they are nevertheless elect, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a people possessing something that the prophets of old longed for. Peter says in, in chapter 2 verse 9, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. In chapter 3, he talked about our position within families and social groups. Wives, he says in chapter 3, uh, in the same way submit yourself to your husbands. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. And uh, I think as Stephen Cass helpfully explained a few weeks ago, that, that passage is not just talking about married couples, but it's talking about singles. It's talking about those who may be widowed or divorced. It's how we as a people relate to one another and honour each other no matter where we stand uh, in our stages of life. In the second parts of chapter 3 and 4, uh, which I looked at last week, he talks about our position in regards to the world as a people that would face sufferings and trials. Dear friends, he says in chapter 4, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Suffering is a normal part of the Christian life. But in this first part of chapter 4, he talks about our corporate position to each other within the church, and he reminds us of what I would call six healthy, yes, you heard that right, six healthy signs. We've got six points this morning, so just, just go with it, you know, take it in, breathe it in, we, we, you, know, you know, we can talk to you about it afterwards, but yes, yeah, six points, six signs of a healthy church. 
And this book comes with incredible relevance for us today. So six things that we should be looking for amongst ourselves to say, yeah, we we see that here. We see that here. Um, It's a bit like an MOT for our church, if you like. Six signs or characteristics, six tick boxes you kind of hope the garage are going to give you a pass on. Um, And if we're not sure that we can see those signs, or those signs don't seem to be very evident, then it is a little bit like getting that advisory on your MOT that actually, sir, madam, there's something here you need to address. Uh, Can I also say, as we look at these six signs of a healthy church, if you see a lack of them anywhere, then the response to that is not necessarily to go and confront the elders, okay? That's going to be a bit tricky today because, like I say, they're all four corners of the world, aren't they, with with Danny and Steve and uh, and Dave. You're going to have trouble doing that. But even if they were here, the right response is to look at ourselves, And if we see a lack of something, to say, well, actually, what am I doing about this? How am I responding to this? Yes, our elders are going to lead us and lead us well and guard us and protect us from going down wrong paths. But there's a a responsibility that we have to say, do I demonstrate this and model this? And if not, what am I going to do about it? So six points. We're going to have to move at pace, but would I ask you to consider these as you meet, as your small groups, and work through the other questions in the Holy House booklet. Firstly, we should be a people who embrace change and have changed and are prepared to change. It says uh, there, we are now living for the will of God. I, I love my alliteration, as many of you have heard me before will know. That means all my points have to start with the same letter. So even though we've got six, I'm not going to break that trend. You have to go with me in the alliteration. But I'm calling this first point a new direction. As people, as individuals, we are moving in a new direction. The core principle of the Christian life is that we have been stopped in the direction that we were going. We've been turned through 180 degrees and we are moving in a new direction. Peter says in the first two verses in chapter 4, therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourself also with the same attitude because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for human desires, but rather for the will of God. It's perhaps an obvious point to make, first of all, that as Christians, we are changed people. We're heading in a new direction. There's a change that has taken place in our lives. Uh, The Bible uses such phrases as, uh, we were dead but have been made alive. That's Ephesians 2. Or, Or being born again, which is the way that Jesus found to explain this new life to Nicodemus. You've been born again. It's that transformative. It's that different. It's that much of a change. And we must never lose sight of this fact that we are changed people. The the Christian faith can never be just adopting some new ideas, some new practices. It's not just some um, self-help book for a better life. It's not just a a comfy jumper that we put on, uh, some ideas, some ways of behaving that we say, well, yeah, I'll adopt that, but it's actually not really going to change my life much. Christian faith is never that. We are new creations. 
And those of us that have been Christians for many years, we need to remind ourselves of this. This isn't just some uh, little change that we've been made, uh, that we've absorbed. And we need to be careful as we share our faith with others, that we don't water down the truths of this. You know, our message mustn't be, oh, oh, come to Jesus and he'll sort out all your problems and your life will be rosy. There's a change involved. There's a commitment involved. It's come to Jesus and things might get tough. You might actually face some suffering. You might actually face some difficult life choices. But actually, you'll embark on one of the most extraordinary and amazing adventures that you can imagine. The great thing is about this that uh, it's God who changes us. Again, we need to remind ourselves that we can't change ourselves. As I said, this isn't just some self-help program to be slightly better us. God is in the business of transforming lives. And so we need to come to him and pray and he'd say, God, change me. I can't do it. God, change me. All, all I can do is be willing to be changed by you. But we have to do that. We have to express that. And for some, that can be moving into new areas of service or ministry for some, that might mean a lifestyle change, as the Holy Spirit points out things in our lives and says, well, actually, that does need to change. For some, it might be saying, well, okay, God, what next? As we move through different stages in our lives. For all of us, it should be an attitude that says, I'm not satisfied with where I am. I want more of God. We live, as that verse says, for the will of God. What is your will for me, Lord? What do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go? Because I want to be obedient to your will. There's so much in those first few verses alone that we could unpack, but, uh, but let us move on for now. Secondly, we should be a people who preach, or if you prefer my alliteration, we should be a people who have a sure declaration now, Peter's already made this point in chapter 3. You always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Peter may have said it in a previous chapter. I may have said it last week. But it's actually a really key point. Uh, and Peter opens up this idea in this chapter. He says this is why it's important to preach, to tell people the truth about Jesus. Because they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached. This verse carries such weight. We, we preach and the gospel. And can I be really clear here? When, when we talk about preaching the gospel, I don't just mean what we do up here on a Sunday morning. When we talk about preaching, yes, some of us do it up here on a Sunday morning. Some of it do, us, do it at the school gates on a Monday morning. And I have a feeling I know which one's actually slightly more effective, and I think it's probably the latter. As we speak to people with our lives, as we share our lives, as, as we just say to people, this is who God is. Can I share something of him with you? We preach, we tell the story in whatever way we can, through, through words, through actions, because one day all men and women will stand before him who judges the living and the dead. We all have uh, perspectives on so many things. We all, if I can use that phrase loosely, preach about so many things. We have our views and our opinions. Uh, I might prefer a particular supermarket. 
you might prefer another retailer. We could have a discussion about that. I might have a particular favourite movie or book which you might agree with or disagree with. And we could have a great discussion about uh, our literary tastes or our music tastes or, or pretty much any other subject you want to think about. We spend our lives both subtly and overtly preaching a particular viewpoint and our opinions. But at the end of the day, do they really matter? Do they have eternal consequence? They probably don't. But we preach the gospel. And again, in whatever way or fashion or means you do that, we preach the gospel because every man and woman will one day stand before the creator of the universe and give an account. This is the message that matters. And this is a sobering thought, because as a healthy church, we want to be a church that declares the truths of God plainly, not watering them down just to make them more acceptable to people, but, but talking clearly about decisions that have eternal consequences. Uh, when we read the Gospels, it's kind of easy to imagine uh, that Jesus preached and told people about God and multitudes followed him. And they did. But many didn't. There's some verses in Scripture that we're sometimes not so comfortable with and we tend to kind of jump over. Uh, in John 6, it says there, on hearing it, that is Jesus telling the truth about God, on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? And aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said, does this offend you? Well, the gospel is an offence. The truths of the gospel are an offence. And we can't edit out the bits that we're uncomfortable with or we don't like or might make people a little bit uncomfortable because then it isn't the gospel. Or the rich young ruler in Mark's gospel confronted with the challenge of giving up his wealth. But he was deeply dismayed by these words and he went away grieving. Or the, the wonderful, I think the only way I can describe it, this wonderful contradictory verse in Acts 5. Now with many signs and wonders, or many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. What do you think would be the result of that? Many signs and wonders were done amongst them by the apostles. The verse goes on to say, but none of the rest dared join them but held them in high esteem. I think there's a great contradiction there that, that people were, were witnessing the power of God. And there was also something fearful that said, can I join this group? Dare I join this group? Because this is going to require a change in my life. This isn't just something I drop on and absorb and just carry on as if nothing has really changed. None of them None of the rest dared join. That's Acts 5, 12 and verse 13, if you want to look that up. So as we examine ourselves, do we preach the truth from the pulpit and in the playground and preach the whole truth and not just a watered-down version that will appeal and not demand anything in response? There is an enormous pressure on the church in these days to become more relevant and accepted, accepted by society. If the truth be told, to compromise 
or even question some of the core truths of the Bible. But as I said before, the gospel will cause offence. Biblical truth will cause offence. And more and more, as it seems to be opposite to the values and the direction that the world is going. And when there's things are going in two directions, it's not us that need to change and go in the direction of the world and compromise our message. We need to hold true to that course. We hear these days of so many church leaders who possibly in a desire to reach out to people end up denying such core truths as the physical death and resurrection of Jesus. I say that all religions are equal. They all point to God and just offer variations of the same truth. Or if we want to be more current, adopt a position on gender roles and sexual ethics that we may not find supported in Scripture. These are areas that we as a church and as individuals need to be clear on and declare boldly. I heard an interesting quote uh, this week. Uh, it's actually been spinning round in my mind ever since I heard it. I'm still kind of working through the uh, ramifications of it. Uh, but someone said, uh, again, in, a, in a, uh, a video I was watching this week, he just said, uh, the church and the world have always been at opposition with each other. There's no surprise there. But if you go back 15 and 20 years, the question that most people outside the church asked was, is this true? Is this true? And the objections that many people had to Christianity was, was that we simply don't think this is true. We think this is a made-up story. We think this is a false story. We just don't think it's true. But come forward to the current day and the current generation, and people are no longer asking, is this true? The question they're asking is, is this good? You see, the objection that people now have are, is that we don't simply think this Christian position that you hold is good. The stand that the church takes on certain matters, let us say sexual ethics and gender issues, or that Christ alone is the only means of salvation, it's actually seen as something that's harmful something that marginalises or disenfranchises people. And that can't be, the world says, good. Now, when someone comes to you and says, I don't think what you say is true, that hurts. And we may end up having to agree to disagree. But when someone comes up to you and says, what you're saying is harmful, then that's actually at a different level. And there does become an enormous pressure to say, well, maybe I need to compromise my position. Maybe I do need to find a middle ground. Maybe I do need to be a little bit more accommodating. Maybe I do need to change my message. I would say to that, let's go back and look at those verses in verse 4. They, that is the world, are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living and they heap abuse on you. You see, I would understand if the verse there said, uh, if the world said, well, actually, we enjoy our direction of reckless wild living, and you guys in the church are going in another direction, and we get that. 
But that isn't what the verse says. You see, the verse says, firstly, the world is surprised. Hey, why if what we have is so good, wouldn't you want to come in the direction that we're going? And then, secondly, they are abusive. How dare you not embrace this lifestyle that we hold on to? And so when the world says to us, how dare you hold that viewpoint, that viewpoint that you have is harmful, do you see the pressure that we're under to maintain the truth and to preach the truth? And can I suggest, just maybe, one of the reasons that we might face persecution or opposition in the future is not because, or is because, people come to believe or perceive that what we stand for is harmful. No matter how crazy that might seem, people might take a viewpoint, might even be taking that viewpoint now, that the truths we stand for are harmful to equality and inclusivity and treating all people as equal. Literally, as I was writing my, literally, as I was writing these notes uh, on my laptop, uh, an email popped in uh, from a website that I keep as a newsfeed, just with the headline, over 500 anti-Christian hate crimes were recorded in Europe last year. We're not talking about Africa. We're not talking about Muslim countries that as nations are politically opposed to Christianity. We're talking about Europe. We're talking across the English Channel. We're talking about countries that we've probably all been to on our holidays. Over 500 hate crimes committed against Christians in the last year, presumably for the beliefs and the stand that they hold as they preach the gospel. <coughs> Nevertheless, the sign or one of the signs of a healthy church is that we preach the gospel. I think Peter's being very prophetic in these early verses and stressing well the need to declare confidently what we believe in, no matter what the consequence or cost. Thirdly, we need to pray. Peter says something very interesting in verse 7. Not just the what we do, but the why we do it. Uh, this could so easily have been two points. I could have had seven points this morning, but I'm going to keep this as one. Because I think Peter is actually saying something very profound in the way that he words verse 7. We have a, a clear destination in sight. Uh, we have a new direction. We have a sure declaration. We have here this clear destination. The end of all things is near. The end of all things is near, verse 7. We're not just running meaningless laps around a race course, wondering when it will all end. There is a finish line before us. Now, this might sound very fearful when we talk about the end of all things, but as Christians, we know there is a direction and a destination for history. Yes, we're facing unsettling times. And yes, Jesus says in Matthew, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed for all of this must take place. And Peter and Paul so often uses this picture of a runner. There's these two ideas that are going to come here together. So, so the end of all things is near. And then I've also got this picture of a runner. As Paul says, run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. 
but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. So we run. We're mindful that there is a destination. The finish line is in sight. But in this verse in 1 Peter, this this idea is wonderfully joined with the need to pray. Yes, the end of all things is coming. Yes, we train to run well and to not fall before the finish line. But what is our primary reason? What is our primary response to that? We pray. We pray because the end is near. Uh, we, we could, of course, say that well, Peter and the apostles, they didn't need to be quite so urgent in their call to pray for the end because, after all, we're still waiting 2,000 years later. Christ hasn't come back yet, but there was a real expectation in the early church that Christ would return. And indeed, one of the themes that Paul addresses in Thessalonians is the concern that was rising in the early church that people were actually growing old and dying, and Christ actually hadn't come back. And people in the church were saying, well, what does this actually mean? And so, so Paul has to write and address that in saying in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 13, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep. And he goes on to speak into this whole area of Christ's second return. And the tension that Christ might return at any time is a right tension for the church to hold on to, for every generation of the church to hold on to. We do not know when Christ will return, but the time is growing shorter with every passing moment. And so we pray. Again, we could make a whole series about prayer and the need to pray and why we pray and how we pray. But I think Peter paints paints a really interesting picture here as he puts this emphasis on prayer. Prayer not because there are sick amongst us, not because people need healing, not because there are needs that need to be met, not because we want to have a greater revelation of God. And don't get me wrong, all of those are good. All of those are great things and reasons to pray for. But in this verse, Peter says, pray because the end is near. With that earlier verse, there are men and women who will stand before the creator of all things. What are we doing about it? We pray. We pray. We have an urgency in evangelism and mission for the simple reason that the end of all things is near. The finish line is getting closer and closer. Are we a people who pray? Are we a people who intercede We are people who keep on praying when it will be so easy to give up and say, well, that that didn't get answered. I won't bother anymore. We're not confused by what's going on in the world. Of course, we're aware of situations, situations that cause us concern and deep hurt. But we're not confused or perplexed. As Jesus says, these things must come to pass. But we pray. So let me ask you, as a healthy church, are we a praying church? Are we as individuals people who pray? Fourthly, we must love one another. We have a new direction. We have a sure declaration. We have a clear destination. Fourth sign of a healthy church is that we have a loving discipline or a loving mindset to love one another. Peter says in verse 8, Above all, love one another deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. 
We must be a people who care for one another and support one another. Acts 4, uh, 40, uh, 34 and 35 is a widely quoted verse I know is actually very much at the heart of our mission and desire uh, as a church. There were no needy people among them. For from time to time, as those who owned land or houses sold them, bought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. We keep coming back to verses like that because they're important, and even more so as we face this this energy crisis, cost of living crisis, as there are more and more needs that need to be met, not just in the church but outside the church. Are we going to be a people who love one another? I must say, however, I was actually intrigued by this verse. It's interesting how often you read verses and you think, yeah, I've read that so many times before, I get that. And then for some reason, God just stops you and you read this verse and you think, actually, do I get this? Because as I read this again, I was just intrigued by this phrase, love covers a multitude of sins. What do we actually mean by that? It's here in Scripture, so it must be right But I actually almost found myself asking, well, actually, is it right? Does love cover a multitude of sins? Surely sin is sin. The truth of the gospel isn't the truth of the gospel that sin is serious and sin can't be ignored or sidestepped or covered up. Only through Christ's sacrifice is sin covered. I would agree that Christ's love does indeed cover or atone for our sins. But we're not talking about Christ's love here. We're we're talking about the love we have for one another. So again, can I ask this question? How or in what way does love cover a multitude of sins? I trust I'm not the only one that's that's, that's seeing that verse and asking that question. If I am, we're just going to have to roll with it. But but, but I read that, and that just kind of stopped me there. Uh, Maybe you're with me, and maybe you're not. But hey, I'm I'm going with this one because it's the only point I got. All right? Um, well, Well, I don't think Peter is talking here about the forgiveness of sins that is clearly required for us to come before a holy God. I think he's talking more about how we interact with each other and sometimes how we have to bear with one another when we might not quite see eye to eye. See, we all have our failings and our faults and our weaknesses. We have, if I might call them, those sins that that others in the world are very quick to point out. Say, oh yeah, you did that, or you didn't quite do that right. The world's very quick to point out our failures and our weaknesses. We, however, are called to love one another, to be a people that sees beyond those faults and sometimes beyond the hurt that people can cause with a thoughtless comment or action. The world is so quick to make a big thing of those, to trumpet those failings. We're called to bear with one another, maybe sometimes to overlook a hurt, Now, let's be really clear here. We're not talking about excusing the inexcusable. Sometimes things do need to be called out and acted upon for the good of all. But where possible, where possible, let us show love and not hold on to hurts. I think think Paul is very honest when he says in Romans, this is Romans 12 and verse 18, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. If it is possible, suggest that sometimes it may not be possible 
to live at peace with all people. And sometimes there are hurts and sins that can't be ignored. Uh, Obviously, one of the uh, topics that uh, Valentina and I uh, have been discussing at length over these last few months is obviously with the situation in Ukraine and the war that's going on there, the whole area of a right Christian response to that. For both Russian and Ukrainian Christians, is it right to fight? Is it right to oppose unjust rulers? Remember, one of the verses we saw just earlier in 1 Peter, in this same book, was a verse I think Danny opened up right, right early at this series, which says, submit yourself to the Lord's sake to every human authority. Well, how do we reconcile that verse with what we're seeing in the world at the moment? Well, I think this verse in Romans helps us because it says, as much as we may want peace, as much as we might seek peace, as much as we might pray for peace, as much as we might want to be at peace with all men, there are some circumstances where it is not possible. But coming back to the church and our family of believers, let us show love, let us honour one another and not be so quick to see the shortcomings of others. If today you need to ask forgiveness for someone, or to honestly say, look, you may not have meant it, but what you said hurt me, then let us be open with one another. Again, we could devote a whole series to what it means to love one another as a fellowship, and how that is a sign of a healthy church. But I wanted to define it in the way that Peter meant it as he wrote this letter. Fifthly, We serve. A sign of a healthy church is that we are a serving church. We have a new direction, a sure declaration, a clear destination, a loving discipline, and fifthly, we have a corporate duty. Use whatever gift you have to serve one another. We're called to serve one another. It's as plain and simple as that. Peter specifically calls out the gift of hospitality, but there's so many other gifts as well. And we don't have time to look at all the passages in Scripture that talks of spiritual gifts and fruit of the Spirit. I think in this context, in 1 Peter, Peter's not actually so much talking about those power gifts of, of prophecy or leadership. They're obviously fundamentally important. But, but Peter here is talking about just the, the everyday gifts the everyday actions that should define us as a church. And we spent the summer in Garden Church, didn't we, looking at this? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. That wasn't something we just did for the summer to wrap that one up and say, oh yeah, we've done that one, we've boxed that one up, we can now move on. We come back to those weekly, daily, and saying, are we displaying that? Do we see that amongst us? Use whatever gift you have to serve one another. You see, the whole idea of servanthood is so countercultural. If we were to say there's one direction where the world is going in that is just so opposite to the direction that we as a church want to go in, it is this idea of service. That if you want to be someone, you make yourself the last. As Jesus says in Matthew, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I think we could so easily make a whole series on what it means to serve and to understand servanthood 
as a key principle and a sign of a healthy church. I think as a church, we have, and as a people, we have an opportunity to model something that is, is simply not seen in the world today. I have to be honest, if you look at our politicians, and I don't say just say our politicians, I think this goes true for politicians in pretty much just about every, let me say, democracy in the world at the moment, given certain situations. But people who would, in one sense, say we serve the people... That's the sort of thing that's kind of written into constitutions and statements of government. Politicians will say, we're here to serve the people. But when we truly get under the skin, when we truly look at the reality of their lives, are they living a life that puts themselves last and others first? And I've singled out politicians there. We could look at so many aspects of the world today and say, do people really see putting themselves last and others first as a key principle of how society should function. I think, as I said, we have the opportunity to model something remarkable. And then lastly, whoo, lastly, we need to be a church that worship. We have a new direction, a sure declaration, a clear destination, a loving discipline, a corporate duty, and then we know and we are looking for a certain dominion as all things are gathered together under one head. Peter has suggested in this short 11 verses a number of things that we ought to do to ensure that we are part of a healthy church. I think it's good to close this section and acknowledge at the end that God is right at the heart of this. We speak with the words of God, we serve with the strength that God provides, so that to him are the power and the glory and the honour. Our worship must remain God-focused, giving him the glory. This is not about ourselves. It was great as we were just praying before the meeting started. I think it was Tina there was just praying that, you know, that our words would hold truth. We don't want to just sing nice songs. You know, we don't even want to divide this meeting up into, oh, well, that's where we, we worship and that's where we preach. No, there must be something about God's truth in our worship. We need to be focusing on him. And again, it's just, uh, it's unfortunate how there are just so many examples in recent months where churches and worship leaders have been caught up in worldly acclaim and position. And church services have become performances. Worship leaders have become megastars. And the focus drifts away from God. Yes, we rejoice in good songs and musical excellence. But it's all for him. And we need to allow space for the Holy Spirit to interrupt our schedule and our run order. As we move into a post-COVID world and a post-COVID church, I think we have some relearning to do on worship and the use of spiritual gifts. I think in a time of social distancing, the phrase body ministry and laying hands on one another was actually a no-go area. And we're quick sometimes to pick those things up after a couple of years of, no, you can't grab hold of somebody and lay your hands on them and pray with them. I think we've got some relearning to do in this whole area of worship. 
We need to continually reevaluate our worship. We all know this, but it's good to remind ourselves of it. Uh, we so often got uh, new people joining us, children growing up with us. Are we modeling worship well? Do you see worship as something important in your small group? Do you see uh, worship as something that we need to make time for? Sometimes on a Sunday morning with all the, all, all the challenges of children and, and other areas of service that we're involved in, sometimes you know, it, it can be difficult to worship. Well, well, are we still keeping that as a focus? In, in the new year, we may well make space for some more informal Sunday evening meetings where we can worship in a more relaxed way. We must always ensure as a church that worship is at the heart of what we do. We worship because he reigns and he rules and we know that his dominion is certain. If I were to sum up these first 11 verses in chapter 4 and all that I've said this morning, there's one thing that I'm very aware of. None of it should actually be new to us. None of this should be new to us. I actually struggled with that. I really struggled with that <laughs> because... When I saw the direction this was going, um, me being me, I've said this before, me being me, I, I want to find some tricky passage in Scripture and unlock it. That's kind of that's where I'm at. That's what works for me. Uh, and when God said, hey, six points for a healthy church, I thought, God, they know this. I'm going to be standing up for half an hour telling them stuff they already know. But I think we need to hear this again. I think we need to keep hearing this I think we need to know this is what a healthy church is. We need to challenge ourselves as individuals. And can I say that as individuals, and, we've, and as we've looked at those six points, and maybe said, well, actually, yeah, I'll do that. I'll, I'll see this one area where I think I am not doing all that I should. What is our response to that? Is it that we lose heart? Is it that we become despondent? Is it that we just give up and say, fair cop, you know, I've failed, I've fallen short? No, no. The whole point is that we can ask God to help us. We can say, hey, I do want to change. I, I, I want to pick myself up. I want to move on again. Yet you've highlighted that area. I am not going to change myself, but I'm going to pray that your Holy Spirit would help me change. We can all do that. We can all grow. If this morning you actually don't know Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, then the, the greatest change in your life, if we just go back to the very first point, that greatest change, that 180 degree turn, is something that you can be involved in and take part in. So if you don't know Jesus this morning as your Lord and Saviour, and that's something you want to explore more about, do come and speak to someone that you know, one of us down the front here, we'd love to share more with you. But can I ask you, just in closing, as we think about those six points, as we hold them in our hearts, let us ask this tough question. Yes, I know this. Yes, I believe this. But am I doing it? Let's pray. Father, just thank you for your word. Thank you for the clarity of your word that you just give us such simple truths and simple guidelines to be the people that you want us to be. Lord, I, help, I pray you'd help us all to, to look at our lives, not through a, a sense of failure or a sense of disappointment or a sense of I can't do that, 
but a sense of, yeah, I can run, I can change. God, you can help me, you can fill me, you can move me on. I pray for this church that we would remain. We are, I pray we would remain a healthy church. But Lord, let us be not in slow in putting that stethoscope to our chest and checking the pulse, checking the heartbeat, uh, checking all those signs that a good doctor would do to say, yes, this is a healthy body. Amen. Amen. Wonderful. Thank you, Ken. Wasn't that good? I am... I always feel with Ken preaching, it's like heart surgery time, and you've got to get comfortable with being a bit uncomfortable. Just uh, asks a lot of really probing, good questions, and um, that's really good for the life of our, each of our hearts and the life of this church. So, um, yeah, Ken said us uh, invited anybody who wants to come and get prayed for. Um, feel free to come and chat to anybody of the team up, up at the front or a friend if you want to understand more about giving your life to Jesus. Today's a good day. There was a prophetic word today that's from Richard about today is, is your day. Uh, don't wait, guys. There's eternal consequences. Um, so the sun is out. There's refreshments and tea at the back. Please don't forget to fetch your children. <laughs> Have a wonderful afternoon. Thank you for joining us this morning, and thank you for joining us on YouTube. Thanks, guys.